Hello and good morning, church. Well, before I begin, I just want to say, I just kind of overwhelming sense that God is actually very near uh, to us this morning. I just want to thank Cassie for sharing uh, her uh, what's been on, on her heart um, this morning um, because and that's actually an exercise of a gift of prophecy, um, you know, a, a mere human report of what God has kind of brought to her heart this morning. And as I go through the sermon, you know why. Um, and and um, but I just want to draw your attention that God is at work this morning. And um, so um, we're going to continue uh, our journey uh, through the Gospel of Luke. Um, so we're going to turn our Bibles to Luke uh, 22, verses 24 to 38. Um, so please turn your Bibles to there. And this account actually takes us back into the upper room where Jesus had just finished um, the Passover meal with his 12 disciples. Um, so we're being brought back um, to that, um, that story uh, in the upper room. Uh, so please read with me, Luke 22, 24 to 38. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for your word this morning because we know that your word is powerful. It brings life. In the same way, Lord, that when you breathed out your words in creation, you brought forth everything. In the same way, Lord, now as, as your word is preached and breathed out, Lord, we pray that you bring new life to us. May you bring regeneration. May you bring a new creation. Lord, may weak legs be strengthened. May downcast souls be lifted. And may dull hearts come alive. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, I recently um, watched the movie Pilgrim's Progress with my two older kids. And uh, it's based on a story written by a Puritan by the name of John Bunyan in 1678. And it's a wonderful story that portrays the Christian's pilgrimage through life. And the story is about a boy named Christian and how he escapes from a city of destruction and he heads towards the celestial city. From a place of bondage and oppression to a place of joy, to a place of peace where there is no more suffering. And there's a scene along the journey Christian gets to a crossroads. On the one path, it's labels passion path. It's flat, it's undulating, it's beautiful, it's sunny. It looks good and it looks easy. But he knows it leads away from a celestial city. On the other path, the patient path. It's winding, it's muddy, and it heads up the mountain but that path leads to the celestial city. I think this scene just so reflects so accurately an aspect of our Christian life, doesn't it? It's that it's not easy. At times, we're more focused on the muddy path than the celestial city ahead. For instance, we could be tempted to think that when we go to church, we get one less day to do all the home chores. And whether it's the piles of laundry that's been stacking up during the week, or those handyman jobs around the house that needs fixing, and don't mention all the overgrown gardens and the leaves. When we go to church, it's another day to wake up early, you know, and to serve. And whether it's putting on out the chairs in the morning, or serving on, on the PA, or the, or the music. And it also means we don't have a, a late night on a Saturday night. No party. Late. <laughs> And we probably don't have kids' sport in the morning either. Um, boy soccer if you're living in the North Shore. No kids' birthday party on a Sunday morning. And my eldest son got another invite um, just the other week. So Rhythm of Life is, is busy in Sydney. You already work five days a week, you work hard, and you could simply do with another day of doing nothing and perhaps a lazy brunch next to the beach. And until that persecution comes as a Christian, you, you're being labelled as, as intolerant at work. And being a Christian involves the work of growing in holiness, being transformed in the likeness of Christ. And at times, to be honest, we fail. So the point is this, as followers of Christ, we are battling to live a life that is different to the world. And at times, we can all feel a little bit tired, don't we? We feel like a fish swimming against a tide. And so we feel a little exhausted and we lose a little bit of zeal of following Jesus. And indeed, for some here today, maybe you're at an edge. You're, you feel you're just clinging on to your faith. Well, church, our passage this morning shows us that Jesus is faithful. And he is relentlessly marching towards the cross. Jesus has his eyes fixed on the cross. And nothing could get in the way of him getting there, not even his disciples' failings. And in so doing, we see Jesus' faithfulness to us, and may we be strengthened to truly follow Jesus. So my one hope this morning 
is that we would be strengthened to follow Christ because he is faithful. And so three points this morning. Point one, Jesus is faithful despite our selfishness. So we serve. Point two, Jesus is faithful despite our failures. So we persevere. And point three, Jesus is faithful despite our ingratitude. So we behold. So point one, Jesus is faithful despite our selfishness. So we serve. A little bit of context, just to remind ourselves where we left off last week. Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room and he just finished the Passover meal with his 12 disciples where he instituted the Lord's Supper. And as Austin so faithfully brought alive last week to us last week was that it's a significant moment because all Passover looked back at God's saving work, how he brought Israel, God's people, out of the slavery in Egypt. And the Jews celebrated that. But now Jesus says, look at me. Look at my body broken for you. My blood poured out for you. It's a significant part of his instituting the new covenant. It's a pinnacle of a night. But from there, everything goes downhill. After the meal, Jesus predicted that one of the twelve would betray him. And now we're at today's passage. Read verse 24 with me. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now if we pause here, Jesus has just instituted the Lord's Supper. He's told his disciples that he's going about to suffer and go to the cross and give his life. Jesus is about to go through the most grueling trial Whipped, lashed, humiliated, mocked, serving mankind. And here you have his disciples arguing over who is the greatest. I mean, this is outrageous. This is unbelievable. It's like a slap in the Savior's face. And because it's not the first time either, the disciples did just that, just back in Luke 9. But Jesus again responds patiently and in love teaching his disciples. Read verse 25 and 26 with me. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, but those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Here Jesus contrasts who the world regards as greatest versus who the kingdom of God regards as greatest. The world's view is that those who are great are the ones who calls the shots, who has authority. And we're told they're called benefactors. I mean, it's a self, it's a name given to themselves. The leaders call themselves that. It's, it's like quite self-serving. It's like calling, just call me generous, okay? Um, that's what it's like. Just call me a benefactor. But the kingdom view is that those who are great are those who serve. It is those who become us the youngest. And in this, in this culture back in that day, the younger got the least rights and gets all the menial tasks. The modern day equivalent is like um, the coffee boy. You know, the, back in my early days in the banking, it's the most junior guy in the team who goes and gets a coffee for the rest of the team. But Jesus goes on, um, read verse 27, for who is greater, one who reclines at table or for one who serves? 
Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Here Jesus asks a rhetorical question. And our instinct is to say, surely the one who reclines at the table, we want others to serve us. Surely that is the greater. But Jesus identifies himself as the one who serves. The Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And having instituted the Lord's Supper just moments ago, we know that within the next 24 hours, Jesus will undergo tremendous suffering as he approaches the cross. But he will serve us by dying on the cross for our sins because he is the one who serves. Let's read verse 28 to 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So not only do we see that Jesus is the one who serves, we see here that Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the one whom God, the Father, assigned him the kingdom. And he's like, if you stay with him in his trials, Jesus says, you'll be eating at his table in his kingdom. The party belongs to him. He is the host. Jesus here is teaching his disciples that he is the greatest. The kingdom belongs to him. Yet, he is the one who serves. He doesn't say, okay guys, you guys go and serve. But he identifies himself as the one who serves. And despite the selfishness of the disciples arguing who is the greatest, Jesus is faithful to them. He embraces the cross and pours his life out for them. That is how Jesus serves. Now recently I spent my, I had an anniversary with my wife Katrina and we stayed in an overnight hotel in the city and it was a package, you stay overnight and get this kind of big buffet breakfast in the morning. And I've got to say, it was one of, probably one of the best buffet breakfasts I've ever had um, in Australia. Um, food just kind of went on and on and on, um, unending. And uh, you just imagine the hours that went into preparing those, those food. And here we are, Kat and myself, just kind of waltzed into the buffet breakfast. And it's like, whoa, all this food available. Um, we just woke up and just walked in and waiters serving us, you know, in their aprons and bow tie. It was, it was nice. Um, but, but man, don't we love to be served? Um, you know, I want to be the one reclining at the table and, and uh, enjoy this feast. Um, but the point is that, you know, we too, like the disciples, all want to be served, don't we? And rather than serving others, we want to be served, but Jesus has reversed this. Now, it doesn't mean that I go into the kitchen and start cooking, um, but what our life is meant to reflect is a disposition to serve others in the same way that Jesus served us by going to the cross for us. We're to serve people around us by encouraging them in the Lord through attendance at gospel community groups, through contribution in our small groups, through spending time praying for others, through going out of our way to help others who may be doing it tough. And for your non-Christian friends, serve them by telling them the good news about Jesus. However, it's so easy in the world's mentality to creep into church, you know. I mean, our group serving this morning, I'm not saying that they are thinking this, but, you know, oh no, it's our turn to pack up again. Um, you know, we can, we can be tempted to, to be self-focused. 
But we have a beautiful example of Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and came as a man. And not just a man, he came to die. And not just to die, but to die on a cross in a humiliated way. You know, growing up as a teenager, I remembered mum used to um, get us uh, to put on a roster to take turns um, washing up dishes and cleaning the floor after we have our dinner. And, uh, and growing up, I used to hate washing up dishes. Um, you might share the same sentiment. Um, but the thing is, I grew up and I appreciated that all that mum has done for me um, in loving us and in serving us. It became more and more a joy to do the dishes because I love her. And to be able to serve her in this way and help her is a privilege. But church, how much more this morning as we behold Christ and what he has done for us, how much more should we be encouraged and motivated to serve him? So the next time we serve, whether it's serving on a Sunday in the PA or of a music or leaving work early to attend you know, gospel community groups or to encourage a, a brother or sister when he decline to work those extra hours at work so he can serve faithfully at church or in the home or the next time you increase your giving to the church, know that you are serving the church. But more than that, you are serving Christ Jesus himself, the one who gave his life for us. And rather than grumble in our hearts, potentially, let us follow Christ, who was the greatest servant, the one who is faithful to us. O oh, church, as we behold his faithfulness to us, even in the midst of our selfishness, that when we were still selfish, he was selfless. And may we be strengthened to serve him. But not only is he faithful to us despite our selfishness, point two, Jesus is faithful despite our weakness and failures, so we persevere. Read with, me verse, read with me verse 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here we see Jesus from addressing the eleven, because um, Judas has gone up into the night to betray Jesus. And he goes from the eleven, he now he addresses Peter. And we're not sure why. But maybe because Peter's the one who's been arguing the loudest about being the greatest. Because remember, Peter was the one who was one of the closest, closest to Jesus. He's the one that saw Jesus walking on water. And he just says, Jesus, I want to follow him out of, out of a boat and walk on water. He was a one of the three who witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. But what we're learning that Satan demands to have Peter and that Satan was going to sift Peter like wheat. Now, in case you didn't grow up in an agricultural background, which is probably most of us, Sifting wheat involves, basically, as I looked it up, breaking that wheat on a, on a hard ground so that the husk breaks down. And then they'll put the wheat into a, and toss it into the air so the wind carries away the external husk so that what you're left with is just the seed. So what we'll learn is that Peter is about to go through trials and be tested. But note here that Jesus says that he prays for him, that his faith may not fail. And that as a result, Peter will have turned again, implying that Peter actually did turn away. But interesting to know that here that Jesus refers Peter to his old name, Simon Simon. Not to his new name, Simon Peter. Perhaps alluding to the fact that 
there will come a time when Peter or Simon will not be following Jesus. This is actually a prophecy. Jesus is actually foretelling something and warning Peter of an impending trial, an impending denial. And Jesus knows that Peter will turn away from him, but Jesus prays for him. And Jesus is faithful to him, sustaining him in prayer. And isn't it good to know that our Savior's prayer trumps Satan's demands? And so Peter's faith will not fail. But his faith will stand. And we see Jesus' faithfulness to Peter. But what's Peter's response? Verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Isn't this characteristic of Peter's normal brash style that we've come to know? It sounds really faithful and really full of conviction. But underlying Peter's response actually is self-sufficiency and pride. Thanks for praying, Jesus, but I won't fail you. I don't need your grace. I don't need your prayers, actually, because I won't, I won't turn away. The response oozes with pride. And perhaps Peter is still wanting to be seen as the greatest in the kingdom and proving that he should be the greatest because he's the most loyal. But the point here, again, is that yet again we see another slap on Jesus' face. Jesus is saying, in effect, Peter, you'll deny me. You will fail me. But I've prayed for you, and your faith will not fail. In fact, once I offer myself on the cross, all your failures, shame and sin, and denial of me will be taken away. And in light of that, Peter, you will turn. But in Peter's response, he rejects all that. He rejects that he will fail. He rejects that he will deny Jesus. And Jesus responds in verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Well, church, how sad it was, as we know in the later chapters in Luke, that Jesus' predictions come true. And Peter doesn't just deny him once, denies him three times. But the point is this, church, that the beautiful truth is that notwithstanding Peter's denial, notwithstanding his pride and self-sufficiency, Jesus is faithful. And he marches on forward to the cross. I return to a scene in John Bunyan's um, Pilgrim's Progress. And the main character, Christian, actually walks around with this big sack of load on his back. And this sack, actually, on his journey, just grows bigger and bigger. And actually symbolizes his sins and burdens and guilt. And that as the journey progresses, it just gets bigger. But there's this beautiful scene that as he journeys up this path, this muddy path, a shining cross appears before him. And the light from that cross begins to melt away those binds that tied that baggage and that burden on his back. And it finally breaks free. And so church, perhaps some of you here today, you feel like that, you're just like Christian in this story of Pilgrim's Progress. You've put your faith in Jesus, but you walk around through this broken world and you feel you're carrying this ever-increasing load on your back. And you feel like you're struggling, struggling under guilt, struggling under repeated failings, and a sense of being a failure as you follow Jesus. Or maybe this morning you don't know Christ, and you feel the same burden on your back. Friends, let us behold Jesus' faithfulness to you 
that despite your weaknesses and failures, he headed to the cross regardless. And on that cross, he died for your failings. And if that's you, keep turning to Jesus. And like Peter, true faith and perseverance will be revealed in repentance, not sinlessness. Because we all sin. We all need to keep coming and keep turning back to Jesus. We all need to persevere in our trials by not turning to our Lord Jesus. We fail him, but we have to keep turning to our Lord Jesus who is faithful to you, who died for your failures. Or perhaps you're here today and you feel that you are being sifted like wheat. You're going through trials, perhaps trials with no expiry date, or going through difficulties in life. And the dark clouds of of trials is circling above you. You bump your head in the cupboard and you feel like breaking down. And you feel that your steps are faltering. You feel that you are weak and bordering on failing. Well, in the same way that Jesus prayed for Peter, know that we too have a risen Savior who is praying for us, who is sustaining us. And we can be assured of that. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, and who is this day at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, how amazing is that, church? That in our failures, we know that we have a, a faithful Savior interceding for us, praying for us, so that our faith will not fail. In the midst of weaknesses, in the midst of failures, may we then look to Jesus and know that he is faithful to us. Riken, Philip Riken actually has this wonderful quote which I'll read out. Jesus is praying for us, but our faith will not fail. He is praying about our chronic pain, that in our physical weakness, we will not stop trusting in the goodness of God. He is praying about our troubled marriage, that in our alienation, we will not stop trusting in his love. He is praying about our financial situation, that in our urgent concern about paying the bills, we will not stop trusting in God to provide. He is praying about our secret discouragement, that in our night of dark despair, we will not stop trusting him to lead us into the light. He is praying about our wandering into sin, that we will not stop trusting in his forgiveness. Jesus is praying for everything we need. Well, church, how good is that? Let's be encouraged that we have a risen Christ who is before our God constantly interceding for us, that our faith will not fail. Not that our trials will go away, but that our faith in him will remain. Oh, church, let us behold his faithfulness to us in our weakness and failures. And may we be strengthened to persevere through our trials and weaknesses. So point one, not only is he faithful to us despite our selfishness, and point two, that he is faithful to us despite our weakness and failures, but point three, Jesus is faithful to us despite our ingratitude, so we should behold him. So having addressed Peter, Jesus now turns back to his group of disciples and addresses them. Verse 35 to 36. 
And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Here Jesus reminds his disciples of a time that he sent them out. Back in Luke 10, when he sent the 72 out, he said, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. And the disciples on their trip experienced no lack and came back excited with joy and amazing that, wow, even the demons were subject to them and praised his name. But now Jesus warns them that a time is coming that the person who has a money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. The point here is that Jesus is saying that times are changing. Trials are coming. Be prepared. Things won't go as smoothly as they did before. Read verse 37. Jesus continues. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So Jesus here is in effect foretelling what is about to take place. That trials and persecution is at hand. And here Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 verse 12. Jesus is saying that the reference in Isaiah to the one who was numbered with the transgressors is he. He is the one. And Jesus says, this scripture is about to be fulfilled. And Isaiah 53 tells of the suffering servant. That there is one who will be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That there is one who bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. That there is one who was pierced for our iniquities. That there is one who will be numbered with the transgressors. Who will bear the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And Jesus says here that it is he. The scripture will be fulfilled in him. And we know that in the coming hours, Jesus indeed will be numbered with the transgressors. On one level, Jesus will be hung between two criminals. But at a more deeper level, Jesus takes the sins of the world upon him. He was innocent, yet dies a sinner because the sins of the world was placed on him. He died as the selfish, though he himself is selfless. He died the failure, the murderer, the sexually immoral, the greedy, yet he himself is innocent. And the wrath of God was poured out on him, for the sins of the world was placed upon him, so that whoever repents and turns to Jesus would receive that forgiveness of sin. So the point is this, that Jesus is pointing to what is to come, pouring out his heart and what is to be done, what must be done. And our response should be to begin to appreciate in wonder all that Jesus is going to do for us. However, what is the disciples' response? Verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The disciples don't, don't get it. And they're still thinking that they're going to take this kingdom 
of God by force. And I think that Jesus in his response is not saying that the two sources are enough to overthrow the Roman kingdom. Um, but rather that Jesus' response is one of frustration. You know, we've seen the opposition to Jesus has been mounting. And it's about to come to a culmination and the end was near. But the disciples continue to fail to grasp the meaning and has no appreciation of what Jesus is about to go through. And Jesus says, that's enough. I am done. And no, no wonder the next chapter, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. <clears throat> Look, growing up, you know, mum always told me um, that we should finish, because um, being from a Chinese family, we eat rice, where we should finish every grain of rice in our bowl. Because we need to appreciate that every grain of rice comes with hard work and should never be wasted, not even one grain. So when you leave your bowl of rice unfinished, it's failing to appreciate the hard work that goes in to grow it, both for the farmers and for our parents who buy the rice and put it on our table. Um, the truth is we, we often fail to fully appreciate all that God is doing for us. We fail to appreciate him. And oftentimes we, we lack the zeal that comes from really understanding all that he has done for us. We, we take our eyes off the cross. But this morning, church, let us come back to him afresh and behold his faithfulness, that despite our lack of appreciation of what he's truly done for us on the cross, he embraced the cross. The innocent one being numbered with the transgressors, despite our ingratitude and our lack of appreciation. And we need to continually renew ourselves of a cross. We need to immerse ourselves in good books that fuel our understanding of a cross. The Bible, reading you know, Isaiah 53, but also books like you know, C.J. Mahaney's Living the Cross into Life, or John Stott's Cross of Christ. But the point is this, church, we need to behold all that Jesus has done for us. And we need to continually feel our appreciation of a cross because that will equip us to faithfully follow Jesus, to serve selflessly, to persevere through our trials and weaknesses, and indeed to have a joy in our life that is countercultural. Well, in conclusion, as we step back, we see the dinner party is falling apart. In an earlier verse, in verse 15, Jesus desired to have this meal with them to explain what he's about to do, that he's about to give his life for them, that he's about to suffer, to be numbered with transgressors, so that people can be made right with God. However, humanly speaking, at the end of a meal, I'm not sure if he would share the same enthusiasm as he did in the beginning. Having just had a Passover meal, the pinnacle of symbolism of what just took place was one thing after another, where Jesus predicts that he who sits at the table will betray him. We had a dispute amongst his disciples who was the greatest. We had Jesus foretelling Peter's denial. And we had other disciples completely mistaken what Jesus is about to do. Things aren't going well. But however, all these things were not a mere accident because Jesus taught the very precious things about what he is about to do on the cross. And the point is this, that Jesus is faithful to us in spite of all this. It's as if Jesus is on a roller coaster track 
and he's on the top of that kind of Big Dipper looking down and he's about to head to the Big Dipper towards the cross. But there is no veering left, no veering right. He's right on the tracks. He's heading straight for the cross and he's not going to stop. And he's faithful to us in embracing the cross. As Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Jesus did so despite our selfishness, despite our weaknesses and failures, despite our lack of appreciation. So church, may his faithfulness strengthen you as we continue following Jesus. Let me end with this, Mark 8, verse 34 to 35. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. If you're here today not following Jesus, invite you to come along this journey because Jesus is faithful in going to the cross. He brought down that dividing wall of hostility that separates us from God. We have an opportunity to come to trust in him this morning and experience the faithful love of our Savior. For those already fallen Christ, let us behold his faithfulness to us. May that strengthen us to hold fast to following Jesus in the same way he unswervingly and relentlessly went to the cross. Let us then with courage and joy serve as Jesus served. Let us persevere in our trials just as Christ did. And above all, let us continue to delight and appreciate all that he has done for us on the cross. Let's behold his faithfulness to us and let's run the race set before us with endurance. And may Luke 22, 28 to 30 be true for all of us who follow Jesus. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, church, that day awaits us. And just like the character of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, the road is, is not easy at times and costly. It is worth it. And you will make it to the end because Jesus, the one who went to the cross, is faithful. Let's pray. Well, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. It reminds us that Jesus indeed is faithful. That even in the midst of disappointments and trials and, and, and the suffering to come, Jesus does not veer from his path. And he stares headlong towards the cross to show us his faithfulness. Lord, thank you for Christ's example. We thank you that he is faithful and that he is today, this moment, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Oh Lord, help us to just begin to grasp the magnitude of your faithfulness, your steadfast love for us as we behold the cross. And Lord, may that strengthen us as we continue to follow Jesus all the days of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.